Oh, Heavenly Father, I need Thee. Oh, God, I need Your power, Your Spirit, Lord. Take control, God. Speak to Your people, Lord, God. Oh, mighty work, Lord, through your word. And bring revelation and understanding, Lord. God, let me speak as I ought to speak, Lord. Glorify your name, God. Amen. All right, church, we are back in Ephesians. And we are still studying the spiritual gifts. The last few times I was up here, this is Ephesians 4, by the way. The last couple times I was up here, uh, we, looked at the, uh, we looked at the spiritual gifts. Um, the last exact time I was up here, we were looking at the, the mission of the gifts, or the goal, if you will. And we seen that the goal was to build up the body of Christ. That's why God had gifted the church with the apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. And so the fivefold ministry, as you would call it. And he had given the church these offices with the purpose of equipping the saints, the church, with truth so that the saints... Christians, other believers, can do their work of service to Christ by operating in the truth and using their gifts to build up the body of Christ. And so that's what we looked at the last time I spoke here about the spiritual gifts. And on today, we're getting down to the ultimate, if you will, purpose, the root of these spiritual gifts that Christ has given the church. So we looked at the mission, if you will, of some of those gifts. But now we're getting to the ultimate purpose for Christ giving the church these different spiritual gifts from the fivefold ministry to the gifts of healing. So that is what we're going to look at today. So why apostles? Why prophets? Why evangelists? Why pastors and teachers? We understand the mission, but why them? And then we're going to look into why gifts of healing, why gifts of mercy, why gifts of giving and discernment and leadership and administration. Why these gifts? What is their end goal? And that is what we're going to look at. So the text where we're going to start, or we're going to spend most of our time, is in verse 13. But for context, we're going to start in verse 11, and we'll read down to 14. But the main text is verse 13. And the Word of God says, And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, verse 13, here goes our meat and potatoes today, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ, verse 14. As a result of this, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful schemings. Amen. 
So again, as I mentioned on today, we're going to look at the why, the ultimate purpose behind these gifts that Christ has given the church. What is the end goal of all of these spiritual gifts that God has given the church? Because in everything, there needs to be an end goal, right? There, there has to be a purpose for like when we're working a job, we're not just working a job, right? We're trying to meet a deadline. We have an objective, whether it's a project that you're working on. You're not just constantly working like our brother here is in manufacturing. I'm sure there's an uh, end goal. There's a product that you're building. There's something that you're building towards when you're working. So it's the same thing in the body of Christ. What is the ultimate purpose? What is the ultimate end game of all of these gifts that Christ has given the church? Because in everything, right, there is an end goal. If you look at sports, for example, what is the end goal of sports? The end goal of sports is winning the championship, right? It's the Super Bowl. It's the, the NBA Finals. If you're baseball, it's the World Series. Or in music, the end goal is the Grammys. That's the ultimate objective. And in literature, it's the Pulitzer Prize or it's the Nobel Prize in literature. That is the end goal for those in that fear. That's Spears. But the gift that Christ has given the church, guess what? They have an end goal as well. They have a Super Bowl as well. They have a championship, if you will, as well. And that championship or that end goal is in verse 13, where he says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. These three things here are our end goal, are the church's end goal with the gifts. This is the ultimate objective of the gifts, why God has given the pastors, the prophets, the teacher, the apostles, why he is giving spiritual gifts of healing, of helps, of administration, of wisdom, of discernment, of mercy, of compassion. Why? So that they, they, they all work towards, if you will, the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and the third one, which is Christ-like, if you will, spiritual maturity. That summarizes the purposes of all of the gifts. Those three things, unity of the faith, knowledge of the Son of God, and this Christ-like spiritual maturity. These are the three goals, if you will. These are the three objectives for the gifts. Now, these three goals, these three, these three objectives are a really, really big deal, right? It's a really big deal that we have the unity of the faith, right? That's a really big deal. It's a really big deal that Christians have the knowledge of the Son of God, that they know Jesus. And it's also a really big deal that Christians will grow into spiritual maturity and looking at Christ. Yes, all three of those objectives, which are the purposes of the, the gifts, all three of those are a really big deal. But... What really makes them a big deal is not them in and of itself. What makes these three objectives that we see in verse 13 a really big deal is this one point here. These three objectives that we see in verse 13, they bring us into the heart and the desire of Christ. These three objectives, they bring us into the heart and the desire of Christ. We learn something about the heart and the desire of Christ through these three goals or these three objectives that we find in verse 13. If you recall, a couple weeks back when I first started here in Ephesians 4, we talked about who is the giver of the gifts, right? 
This was back in verse 7 and 8. We talked about who is the giver of the gifts. And we identified that the giver of the gifts to the church is Jesus Christ. And then we learned what are the means by which Christ gives the gifts to his church, right? And we learned that the means by which Christ gives the spiritual gifts to his church is by grace. We don't work for them. We don't earn them. It's all of grace why God gives people certain abilities, certain skills in his body, right? So we, we learned that the means by which Christ gave the gifts is grace. And then we learned the attitude, right, for which Christ gives the gifts, that Christ gives it cheerfully. Why? Because God loves a cheerful giver. And so when God was blessing his church with these spiritual gifts, we, we understood that Christ was doing that cheerfully. But what these three objectives here in verse 13 show us, these three objectives, they reveal the intention or the desire of, of Christ when he gave the gifts. See, verse, these, three, these three objectives, they reveal what God was desiring or his, his ultimate intention in giving the gifts. So his desire that we learn from verse 13, that we learn that Christ's desire is unity of the faith among his saints, right? Because that's one of the three that's in verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith. So that means that the desire of our Lord Jesus Christ in giving out the gifts and giving out the spiritual gifts of pastors and teachers and healings and all those different things is so that we may have unity of the faith. That is a desire that Christ wants. He desires that his saints will have unity of the faith. And what we also see in verse 13, what, what, what Christ desired or his intention was, and that is that his church, his saints, um, will have knowledge of him. Because that's what it says in verse 13. It says, to the building up of the saints and of the knowledge of the Son of God. So part of the purpose or the intention or desire of Christ giving out these gifts is so that we, the church, we Christians, you believers, will intimately, experientially know him. This is why he has given the gifts to his church, so that his saints may know him. And then the third and final reason that he has given the church these spiritual gifts is so that the church will grow into spiritual maturity and look more like him at the end, right? So spiritual maturity. So that's what I mean how these three verses are now showing us the intention, the heart of Christ. Christ desires that his church is unity, that they may be one, the unity of the faith. He desires that his church will um, have knowledge of him and grow in their understanding and knowledge of him. And he desires that his church will grow into spiritual maturity and look like him at the end. So these three objectives, these three goals of the gifts are what we're going to look at today. So let's dig into this first one here. The unity of the faith. He desires that we will have unity of the faith. He has given these spiritual gifts in hopes that they will bring about the unity of the faith. Now, my, my Bible scholars, when you read verse 13, sorry, this is, I should do it on the other side. When you read verse 13, you're probably saying, hold on. Verse 13 says, until we attain the unity of the faith. But if you back up back in verse, verse 3 of chapter 4, 
doesn't God already say that we already have unity of the spirit and that we ought to be preserving that? So which one is it? Are we trying to obtain a unity, which is said in verse 13? Or do we have unity, which is what the scripture says in verse 3, right? Because verse 3 says, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. To preserve unity means you already have it, right? That's something that you already have. But when we go down to verse 13, He's saying that he's given these gifts so that we may attain to the unity of the faith. So again, which one is it? Do we have unity or are we striving to get it? Well, here's the thing. The unity in verse 3, um, how do I say this? Um, the unity in verse 3 that we are instructed to preserve, it deals with the interaction of believer to believer. In other words, it describes the way that the believers ought to relate to one another to maintain the unity that the Holy Spirit has brought about, right? That, that's what the unity in verse uh, 3 is dealing with. For example, when you look at verse 2, the, the verse that's leading to verse 3, you find words like what? Humility in verse 2, right? You find meekness. You find patience. All of these things are being used in verse 2 and 3. And think about it. How do we show humility? We show humility towards, guess what, other people, right? You don't show humility by yourself. Meekness, you display meekness towards other people, right? You don't do that by yourself. What about patience? We show patience towards other people, right? We don't do that by ourselves. And in the context of Ephesians 4, the people that Paul is talking about, who we ought to show patience towards, that we ought to show humility towards, that we ought to show meekness towards, are other believers, other Christians, other saints. See, we are taught to show tolerance for one another in love. See, all of these traits that we find in verse 2 and 3, they all have the aim of preserving the unity of the Spirit, seeing that the same Holy Spirit resides in you and I. So the, the unity of verse 13 is dealing with a unity of, of, our, of, our, of our treatment or interaction with each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, since we both have the Holy Spirit. This is how we ought to interact with one another in meekness and patience and humility and showing tolerance for one another in love. But now the unity that Paul is praying about or, or speaking towards in verse 13 is a little bit different from the unity of verse 3. See, the unity of verse 13 for which the gifts were given, this unity that he's praying that we all will attain to, the unity of the faith, the unity here deals with the unity of belief. It, it deals with the unity of, the, of orthodox teaching. It deals with the unity of the doctrines of the faith, the, the, the messages and the content taught by the big A apostles and the big P prophets of Jesus and in the gospel. See, that, that's a different type of unity that has been taught here in verse 13. Verse 13 is the unity of the faith. It's what we hold. It's what we believe about Jesus. It's what we believe about the, the gospel. That is why in verse 13, verse 13 bleeds right into verse 14 where Paul is there addressing false doctrines and false teachings and the trickery of man who comes and teaches wrong things which ultimately um, sows discord and disunity in the faith, right? That's what Paul is saying there in verse 14 where he says, as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. That's why verse 13 leads right into 14 about 
false doctrine. So when he talks about unity of the faith in verse 13, he's talking about our teachings, the common beliefs that we have about Jesus and the gospel and salvation and heaven and hell and how we ought to attain that teaching. He's fighting against the false teachings because false teaching is what breeds this unity of the faith. It's false teachings that causes believers to um, separate from one another. And as I mentioned a few weeks ago, if you look at many of your New Testament letters, many of your New, your New Testament letters, again, they are written to address or rebut some type of false teaching that is causing confusion and disunity in the body of Christ, right? So, for example, Paul's letter to the Colossians. Remember in that letter to the Colossians, he is addressing heretical teachings about Christ and salvation. You look at Paul's letter to the Galatians. There, at the beginning of that letter, he is addressing the false works-based gospel that was circulating in the church. You can even go to 1 John. There in 1 John, he's addressing false teachings about Christ, and he's attacking this, this New Age teaching called doceticism, which is taught that Jesus didn't have a physical body, but he only came in the spirit. And so that's why John starts off his letter in 1 John saying, we've seen him, we touched him, we heard him, right? Why? Because he, he's combating this false teaching that is circulating in the church that Jesus didn't have a physical body. So if you really think about it, most of these letters are, are, are really trying to attack some false teaching in the church that is really causing this unity. Why? Because unity of the faith matters to Jesus. And so these apostles are writing these letters to the church to ensure that the church remains strong and unified in the faith. That's where this unity of the faith is. And if you want to see a place in the scriptures where there was unity of the spirit, but not unity of the faith, guess what? You can look no further than Peter and his conversion of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 and 11. Do you remember in Acts chapter 10 and 11? Peter gets the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit reveals to Peter that Gentiles can be saved. And so Peter goes to, this, to Cornelius' house. He's a Gentile, a non-Jew. He goes to Cornelius' house, and he begins to tell Cornelius about um, Jesus. And as Peter's telling Cornelius, this, this Gentile, this non-Jew, about Jesus, the Holy Spirit just interrupts Peter's sermon and begins to just fall on Cornelius and his family. And they begin to speak the words of God, right? But what happens after that? Later in chapter 11 of Acts, Peter's Jewish friends in Jerusalem find out that Peter went into the house of a Gentile and they were mad at him. Not that this Gentile got saved. They didn't even care about the Gentile being saved and the Holy Spirit falling on the Gentile. They were mad that Peter, as a Jew, went into the house and ate with a non-Jew. Why? Because these non-Jews or Gentiles were considered to be unclean and Jews had no dealings with Gentiles. But what happened? What did Peter do? Peter went and told them that, hold on, the same Holy Spirit that you and I have fell on them. And so what happened there were Peter and his brothers in Jerusalem, while they were unified in spirit, they both were born again and had the Holy Spirit. Peter had to bring his brethren in Jerusalem into orthodoxy and unified belief and understanding on how we ought to treat the Gentiles and how we ought to interact with them. So that is the case there where you had two brothers who both had the Holy Spirit, but another brother had to go and bring this other brother into orthodox belief on how we ought to believe and treat the Gentiles are non-Jewish Christians. So the point I want you to see is that, yes, unity matters. And false teaching can sow discord or, and it can sow disunity of the faith in the body of Christ. 
But here's the thing. But Jesus, knowing all of this and loving his church, he, prepare, he prepares his church for the onslaught of Satan by doing what? Giving his church the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit dispensing these gifts to the church, the apostles, the prophets, the pastors, the teachers, and all the other spiritual gifts so that the true faith can be taught and practiced. So that's why in all this, none of this is surprising Jesus. He recognizes all what's going on here. See, sometimes we, we may look out, right, and we look out in Christendom and we see thousands upon thousands of Christian denominations, right? It's so many Christian denominations just in the U.S. alone. And we look at that and we say, unity of the faith? One body? I, I don't see it. But guess what? None of this has caught Jesus off guard, church, if you didn't know that. The fact that there are thousands and thousands upon uh, denominations of Christians, like none of this has caught Jesus off guard. If you recall in Matthew 24, 24, Jesus says this, that false Christ and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. And we are taught that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So in many of these churches, they're not really Christians. They're not really following Christ. There's, there's, there's tons of them. But again, none of this is a surprise to Jesus. Jesus is aware that this was going to happen after he left. That is why he gave the church the gifts. That's why he gave the church his true, his true preachers and, and pastors and the prophets. That's why he gave the gifts to the church. This is not surprising Jesus. He's aware of this, and this is why he gave the church these gifts. You can even look in the Bible in, in, in the early church where you find Paul um, rebutting some of the, the New Testament teachings by false teachers that was been peddled in the church. And Paul, he even addresses some of them by name. So none of this is a surprise to Jesus that there's so many churches around the world, that there's so many denominations. The Lord knows who are his. He knows who are part of his true church. He knows who his true teachers are. He, he knows who his true pastors are and the gifts that he's given. And he knows that those who have been given ears to hear, guess what? They will hear and come to the faith and find that unity of the faith that we so desire. So none of this should throw you off like off that there's so much going on in the world in Christendom. Jesus was well aware of this and he prepared his church for this by giving his true teachers, his followers, the truth, and they disseminate that truth, and all who have ears to hear will come to the knowledge of Christ and will be unified and part of the body. So this unity of the faith is a major objective of Christ giving the gifts. So now let's look at this second objective of the gifts. Let me get my water here. So we have unity of the faith. Unity of the face is one of the first objectives of Christ giving gifts to the church. Now, number two, the knowledge of the Son of God. This objective, this is verse 13, where I'm getting that from, the next part of verse 13. This objective really hits home to me. I love this one. Knowledge of the Son of God. That's part of the reason that Christ has given the church his gifts I love this because this tells us, church, guess what? That Jesus really wants you to know him. That's what this verse tells you, that he really wants you to know him so much so that he gifts the church with these different gifts so that you will reach that goal in knowing him more. 
That's what I mean how this verse tells you about the intention and heart of Jesus. This tells you that Jesus really, really wants you to know him. Jesus really, really wants you to have an intimate relationship with him. So much so that he says, I'm going to give gifts to the church to make sure that it comes to that end. See, that's why this is so big, because it tells you that Jesus really desires. Remember, he's the one that is dispensing the gifts. And it, now this is telling us the intention by why he dispenses the gift, why he wants the church, he wants his saints to have a knowledge of him, knowledge of the Son of God. And guess what? It's not only Jesus that wants you to know him intimately and have knowledge of him, but also the Father wants that. 1 Corinthians 1.9 says this, that God the Father has called us into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So the Father has called us into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So it's, this is what the Father wants, that we will have an intimate relationship and knowledge of Jesus. And it is what Jesus wants, that we have an intimate relationship with him and a deep knowledge of him. See, this is what Jesus wants. Here's the, here's the thing, this, the word here in verse 13, where Paul says, knowledge of the Son of God, the word that is being used here is epinosis. And, and epinosis, this is, this is Greek, epinosis, it, it's made up of two words, it's gnosis, which is knowledge, and epi, which intensifies the type of knowledge. So when, when Paul says the knowledge of the Son of God, he's not just talking about a cognitive knowledge of Jesus. That's not what, what Jesus is desiring, that you would just know him just cognitively, just know him cerebrally, just have the, a mental knowledge of him. No, but this word epinosis is talking about a deep, experiential, relational knowledge of Jesus. That is what he wants. Think about that. Jesus wants you to know him so intimately, to have this relational, experiential knowledge of him. And he wants you to know it so much so that he dispenses gifts to the church to make it happen. That should just blow your mind away. See, the teaching gifts that he has given the church, guess what? Their ultimate purpose is to bring you, the saints, to an intimate knowledge of Christ. So that tells me that the ultimate mission of the great preachers that we like, from the Charles Spurgeons to the John MacArthur's to the Tony Evans to the H.B. Charles to the Brian Andersons, is to bring you to have a close, intimate relationship with Jesus. That is the ultimate purpose. That is the underlying goal of the gifts that God has given these men. It is to bring you to have an intimate knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's what he wants. See, the, the pastoral gift that God has given the church to the different people, the ultimate mission is to bring them closer to Christ through obedience because that's one of the major roles of the pastor, to shepherd the flock, to make sure people are remaining in the faith, remaining close to Jesus in obedience. See, all of that is to bring you close to Jesus. And just like the teaching gifts and the prophetic gifts help you to intimately know Christ in the mind, guess what? The other gifts, like gifts of mercy and gifts of help, they help people to know Christ through experience. All of it is to help you come closer to Jesus. For example, speaking of the gifts of mercy and compassion and giving, there have been times, I'm sure, when many of you were on your last dollar, right? Financially, it was rough. But then that brother or sister with the gifts of mercy and giving steps in and they reach out their hand. But guess what? It is not their hand that you're experiencing there at that moment. You are experiencing the hand of Christ. 
See, they're just, God is just using them through the gifts. Through their gift, you are actually interacting with the hand of Christ. And it's not their hand that's reaching out and giving them money. Really, it's the hand of Christ. It's also, think about other times where you've been sad. And life has just been hard. You've been depressed. And you find yourself crying or just pouring out on the shoulder of a brother or sister who has been given that gift of compassion. Do you know that it is not your shoulder that the, you are leaning on? Yes, physically it's their, sho- it's their shoulder, but guess what? The shoulder that you are leaning on, the ear that you are speaking to, it is the shoulder and the ear of Christ. Why? Because with the gift that Christ has given us, we are the feet of Christ. With the gift that Christ has given us, we are the hands of Christ. With the gifts and ability that Christ has given us, we are the legs of Christ. With the gifts and the ability that Christ has given us, we are the eyes of Christ. We are the ears of Christ. So when we interact with our brothers and sisters with our gifts and ability that Christ has given us, guess what? We're helping them to come intimate and close to this Jesus that we love. That is how the gifts all work together. Their aim is to bring you to Jesus. Their aim is to bring you to the unity of the faith. That is the purpose of the gifts. Bring you close to Jesus. And the first one we looked at, to bring you into the unity of the faith. That you may stay in the faith. That is why Christ has given the gifts. Unity of the faith. I think about you, my brother or sister, who may have the gift of hospitality do you know that when people come into your house who are unbelievers and they feel a peace that they've never felt in their whole life that's totally different from their life do you realize that through you and your gifting they're getting a peace or a a taste of the peace of Christ just by you and your gifting of hospitality Do do you realize that do you realize when they walk through and they're like, man, it's just something different about this house. When I, when I come here, I just feel at peace. Do you realize through your gifting, you're giving them a taste of this peace that they can have in Jesus by you operating in your gifts? See, that's why your gifts are so important, church. That's why it's so important for you to be everything that Christ has called you to be. Well, let's look at the third objective. Third mission or purpose of the gift. And I, I, I call this one Christ-like maturity. So objective number three of the gift that Christ has given his church, church, Christ-like maturity. Because in verse 13, after the knowledge of the Son of God, it says, the other purpose of the gifts is so that you may become a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. This third objective of the gifts here. So, Not only does Christ want you to intimately know him, objective number two, right? Not only does he intimately want you to intimately know him, therefore he gave the gifts to the church. But the third objective says this, he also wants you to look like him. He also wants you to look like him. And if you think about it, this is the desire of every first century rabbi. If you, in the first century, you had rabbis and you had disciples. We say the word disciple in English, but for a Hebrew, the word was a Talmud, right? If you guys remember, we talked about the Hebrew words. So in Hebrew, for disciple, the word is Talmud. And if you have multiple Talmuds, you would have a Talmudim. So the, the ultimate goal of a rabbi, which Jesus operated in the first century as a first century rabbi, 
His teachings methods that he used were very similar to first century rabbis. Jesus was a first century rabbi. That's part of his mode and how he operated. The ultimate objective of a first century, first century rabbi or a rabbi in general was for his Talmudim, his disciples, to look just like him in action and thought. And the goal of a Talmudim was to look like his rabbi. Do you remember there was this saying in the first century, not in the first, I don't know if it was the first century or prior to that, but there was this saying that they would tell a young Talmudim who's from the followers rabbi, the saying was this, um, we hope that you are covered in the dust of your rabbi. And, then, and the, the, the point was that we hope that you follow your rabbi so close, because you think about it, back in those days when they walked, right, there were not paved roads, right? It was dirt. And so as you walked and followed your rabbi, he's walking, he's kicking up dirt. And they're, they're saying that we hope that you follow your rabbi so closely that you are covered in his dust, right? Meaning that you model all of his ways, you do everything that he does. That is what a, uh, a Talmudim would do with his rabbi. And that's what Jesus was doing with his disciples. Which is why you find Jesus saying this in Luke 6.40. He says this in Luke 6.40. That a pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone, after he has been fully trained, will be like his teacher. Again, that's the point of a Talmudim, to be like his teacher. Who's our teacher? Jesus. So that's the ultimate goal is for you to be like his, your teacher. Jesus also said in Matthew 10, 24 and 25 this. He says that a disciple, a Talmudim, or a Talmud, is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. Here's the key part. He says, it is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the slave, like his master. So again, you, you see the, the whole point of a disciple is to look like his master, to look like his rabbi. I mean, that, that is the ultimate objective, that I think like my rabbi when it comes to God's word, that my actions model my rabbi, right? And that is the whole point of us as Christians following Jesus. We want to look like Jesus. And here's the good news. I don't know if you guys knew this. You know what yesterday was? What was the date? Think about the date. It's August. That's eight, right? For the month. But what was yesterday? Eight twenty-eight. What is eight twenty-eight? Come on now. Oh, Romans. Romans. There you go. The good news is what God tells us in Romans eight twenty-eight. Romans eight. Yesterday was eight twenty-eight day. I was going to text it out to the group. But remember, Romans eight twenty-eight says this: that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God and to those who are called according to His purpose. That's Romans eight twenty-eight. But what we also learn about Romans eight twenty-nine and going forward, and Pastor Brian brought this out in his teaching, is that the good that God is working towards is all of us being conformed into the image of Christ. That's the good. That we all may ultimately in the end look like Jesus. And that's what Paul is saying here with the gifts. The gifts are given so that you may come to spiritual maturity and reach the fullness of the stature of the measure of Christ. Meaning that you will look like Jesus. In order for you to look like Jesus, Christ has said, I'm going to give the church these different gifts. I'm going to give different men and women these different gifts. And through these different gifts, they're going to help you to spiritually mature and look just like me. That is why the gifts are important. So how is Christ going to get us to conform into the image of his son? How is the father going to do it? Yes, he's going to do it through a sovereign, omnipotent power. Yes, he's going to do it through the work of the Holy Spirit. But he's also going to do it through the gifts of the church. 
Think about that, church. Your gifts, when used in truth, think about this. It helps to shape me and mold me and your brothers and sisters into the image of Christ. Think about that. That's a weight on you that I'm intentionally, that the scriptures is putting on you. That your gifts, you operating in your abilities, you being all who God has called you to be, you help your brother or sister mature. They, or you push your brother and sister closer to spiritual maturity and ultimately looking like Jesus. And you thought you were just being nice to your brother or sister. And you thought that you, just, you were just being generous to your brother and sister because they had need. No, with your actions, with your words, with your teaching, you are helping your brother or sister in Christ spiritually mature and come to the, closer to the end goal of looking like Christ. Yes, even you which are gifts of helps who enjoy setting up the church tables and chairs and projectors. Yes, even you who purchased the, and prepared the communion table. Yes, even you who, who helps organize the church's calendars and events. Yes, even you who help manages the church's finances. You are all contributing and helping the body of Christ mature and look more like Christ individually and collectively as a church. All of your gifts, none of it's wasted. It's so important. Now, one of the things about this text that I, that I love, or at least I love about the translators, I'm reading out of the NASB. I love that the translators in verse 13 use the word mature to translate the Greek word teleon. So this word in the Greek where it says, to a mature man, if you're reading out of NASB, this word mature is the Greek word teleon, which means complete. And so, I, 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 or telos, if you, that's another root word of that meaning. But I love that the translators have used the word mature here in verse 13, because it really captures the essence of the body of Christ as a living organism going through the human development cycle. And what I mean by the human development cycle is this, right? As humans, we all start as what? An embryo, right? You're an embryo, and then what's the next stage in the human development cycle? You are an infant, right? It's the infant stage, and then from the infant stage, you have the toddler stage, and then you have the adolescent stage, but then you get to a point in life where this woman or man, they fully mature, they, they fill out their body, and they are who they are. And in a way, that is really, that process describes the body of Christ, right? both individually and collectively, because think about this, when you first become a Christian, when you first become a follower of Jesus, you are not instantly spiritually mature, right? Some of us, when we go back and we look on our, our history, when we first met Jesus, we realize, whoa, I was really spiritually immature, right? Whoa, I was really dogmatic. Whoa, I really thought I knew it all then on day one from being a Christian, right? It, it, it's a process, so nobody just shows up and are spiritually mature, what happens is over time by the work of the Holy Spirit, and guess what? Through the gifts of the church, through the preaching of the word, through the teachers that you interact with, through people using their spiritual gifts, you begin to mature and you grow and you begin to look like Christ. 
See, that is why it's so important, my brothers and sisters, that you do not bury your gifts in the sand because we as a church need you so that we can be everything that God has called us to be. I need you. I need your spiritual gifts. I need you being you because you being you in a way helps me to mature and look closer and more like Jesus. That's why you can't bury your gifts in the sand. If, if you have the gift of teaching, you need to teach. If God has given you the gift of giving, you need to make sure you're giving. If God has given you this compassionate heart, well, you need to be operating in it because as you operate in those gifts, you are helping the body to stay unified in the faith. You are helping believers to come closer to Jesus and you are helping believers to look more like Jesus by you operating in your gifts. We can't bury them in the sand. Your gifts have, your gifts have, there's like a, a, a symbiotic or mutual relationship between your spiritual gifts and my growth. Like I need you to be who you are going to be because I don't have all the gifts. I don't see everything. Pastor Brian doesn't have it. We need all of you being who God has called you to be, what God has equipped you to use and to do those things for his name's sake because you all help the body of Christ. This is not a two-person church where me and Pastor Brian just teaches and you just sit there. No, we need everybody. We need everything. All what God has made you. We need you living that out. So, spiritual maturity. Now, just like individually, we didn't start off spiritually mature. You can even say that for the church collectively. The church didn't just start off spiritually mature, but the church collectively has had to grow. And what I mean by that, it, it doesn't take much for a person to look at church history and see all the immature things that the church has been involved in, all the ugly things that the church has been complicit in throughout history, right? And what I'm about to say is probably going to get me in trouble with some. It's going to sound like I'm giving Christians and church a cop-out, but I just think it is what the scripture is saying. And what, I, what I'm trying to get at is this. The church throughout history has been involved in a lot of ugly things. Um, from, I think about the, in the 3rd and 4th century, the Maiphysian and Chalcedon schism, where you had Christians persecuting other Christians over the nature of Christ. Literally dragging people to jail literally cutting people off over a belief that they really had the same understanding on. It was more of a semantic issue. But you had issues like that, or you had missionaries throughout church history who've done some nasty things to indigenous people. That's just the facts. Um, I just heard, I was listening to um, a podcast yesterday, and this guy was talking about the Native Americans. Um, and there was this guy in the uh, Native tribes who was a Christian. These were Christian Native Americans. And they were talking about how the mission, this missionary would come over there and abuse all of the boys. And it's just like, man. And then you can go to some of the missionaries who, who've just done some really nasty things in the name of Jesus all throughout church history. There's been a, a lot of stuff that's done by the church. And I would say the church was, was really acting like babes then. We were really early on in the development process. And if you, you can move just from what's happening throughout church history, you can come to American church history and look at the church's involvement in chattel slavery, the church's complicity in racism and systematic racism in America. This was really the church acting like babes. 
But as the church corrects his wrong through the gifts of the church, God has given the church, the church is growing and getting closer and closer to maturity and looking more like Christ. But the church early on, because again, we're, we're not at that full development stage. We're not at telos, which is the Greek word. We're not at completion yet. We're still work in progress. We're still growing. And through that, you see some of the many mistakes that the church has done due to their spiritual immaturity and, and lack of growth. So the church has still some ways to go, but Christ, none of this is a shock to him. Christ has given his church gifts and he's going to give those church those gifts until the, verse 13 says, until we all come to the faith, meaning all whom Christ has chosen throughout history, until we all come to the knowledge of God or to the knowledge of the Son of God, until we all reach this spiritual maturity. Christ is going to consistently and constantly keep equipping his church with leaders, with preachers, with teachers, with different individuals, with different gifts until we reach this point that God has called. He's always going to continue to raise up more and more leaders. Important case is this. Right now I'm reading, um, I'm reading the 4th century church father Ephraim. Ephraim the Syrian. He was a church father in Syria in the 4th century. And what I'm noticing about these church fathers and church mothers, well, I don't even know that there's been a lot of like big, powerful, influential women throughout church history who've played a major role. Um, one lady is Waleta Petros in Ethiopia. Oh my goodness, she brought about the Reformation before Martin Luther did. Like she helped bring about that. Um, so, but yeah, I'm kind of getting off here. But the, the point that I'm getting at is this. What I've been noticing as I'm reading the church fathers is when the church father or church mother dies or passes away and goes to glory, the church doesn't say, oh no, what are we going to do now? What happens is God always raises up another church father. He always raises up another pastor. He always raises up another teacher, another evangelist. To, he, he always gifts the church with more, all with the aim of bringing those whom he has called into the unity of the faith knowledge of the Son of God, and to Christ-like spiritual maturity. And so even if this generation passed, we can trust and believe that Christ is going to continue to supply his church with more gifts who are going to bring the church into unity, into the knowledge of the Son of God, and Christ-like spiritual maturity. So we can trust that. He's always going to raise up more and more leaders, more and more teachers. So in the end, what I ultimately hope that you see is that I need you and your gifts, and guess what? You need me and what God has made me and given me to do in his kingdom through my gifts and ability. We need each other because through that, we help each other to remain unified, solid in the faith. Through that, we help each other to grow cr close to Christ. And through that, we help each other um, grow into more Christ-like spiritual maturity. And that is the ultimate purpose the telos, if you will, of these gifts are these three objectives. So I'm challenging you all. You got to operate and be who God has called you to be. And I mentioned earlier that I wanted to, this had some connection with us having meetings and dinner with one another. And the connection is this. For me to see what spiritual gifts that God has given you, guess what? I'm not just going to get it here on a Sunday. I'm not just going to get in here when we sit at the table at lunch. 
Like, we have some good conversations, but no, we need to have more interaction with each other outside of church. Because as we do that, then we get to see the hearts of individuals. Then we get to see how God has shaped you. And then you get to see things that in me that maybe you didn't see. And I see things vice versa. Things that you don't even see that God is doing to you that maybe I can even see and point out to you, but you just don't see it. See, that is why it's so important that as a church, we come together, not just on Sunday, not just to do Bible studies, but that we interact and have life with one another. Because as we do that, then we can really see the beauty and how God has shaped you and the mind and the heart that God has given you for his church and for his name. So this is part of the challenge. Yes, pray and ask God, Lord, help me to just see the abilities and the gifts that you've given me. But also, God, let me get together with my brothers and sisters in Christ. So maybe I could point out things and encourage them and point out things that they're not seeing. And they can point out some stuff in me that I'm not seeing. That's why it's very important that we gather, not just as a body, but outside the church individually as family and friends. So let us pray. Heavenly Father, you are good. We thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you for the gifts that you have given the church, God. I thank you for all the gifts that have played a role in me being where I am today, being who I am today, the man and father and husband that I am today. God, thank you for all of the people along the way who have came and pushed me and all of the others who's played a role in my brother and sister's life that are right here before me. All the people with their different gifts and ability who have pushed them closer to you, closer to holiness. God, we thank you for all of those gifts and those people, Lord. God, will you just continue to bless your church, Lord, by raising up more of leaders, pastors, teachers, those with the spiritual gifts that you have given, Lord God. We know that in the end, you, your will will be accomplished, God. The unity that you desire, that we know that nothing can thwart that. But through the gifts, that will happen, God. And relationship with you, Lord, we know that you will make that happen. In Christ-like maturity, God, we know, we trust that you will make that happen. We thank you, Lord. We praise you. Continue to bless your church. In Jesus' name, amen.